Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel. This segment of the episode is a prelude to the episode. The episode that you're listening to is the final episode of the Ithaca Bound podcast series. As many of you know, the podcast series launched in March of 2021. It is January 2022 right now. So in under 12 months, 188 episodes were published through the series. And as many of you also know, for quite some time, it was around 157 consecutive days an episode was published, and that included weekends as well. And to keep up with that kind of publishing cadence really takes some things. (laughs) And one of the things that it takes is wonderful guests and listeners. I cherish all of the conversations that I had with all of the guests as part of the podcast series. And I thank everyone that supported the Ithaca Bound podcast series. And I thank everyone that continues to support Ithaca Bound. In December of 2021, Ithaca Bound launched a video series. It's available on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Ithaca Bound. There is some history still infused in the video series, but more broadly speaking, its focus is on exploring the Mediterranean basin in its current form. And so if you want to watch the video series, it's available, as I mentioned, at youtube.com forward slash Ithaca Bound. The main part of the episode that you're about to listen to to create some background and context when Professor Ivana Petrovich and myself were recording the episode, neither her nor I knew at the time that the episode, this episode, would be the final episode in the podcast series. So I want to create that background and context for you when you're listening to the dialogue. All right, so this is episode number 188. It is the final episode in the Ithaca Bound podcast series. Enjoy the episode. Let's go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Professor Ivana Petrovich joins the show for a conversation that's going to explore what scholars know about the Greek pantheon. Dr. Petrovich is professor of classics at the University of Virginia, based in the city of Charlottesville in the U.S., She has written several books and numerous articles on ancient Greek poetry and religion. As an example, she's co-author of the book, Inner Purity and Pollution in Greek Religion, Volume 1, Early Greek Religion. That was published by Oxford University Press. And she's co-author of the forthcoming Volume 2 in that series. And Professor Petrovich joins the show from the state of Virginia in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Ivana. Thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, Glad to be here. Good to connect with you, Ivana. So to create sufficient background and context for the dialogue today, Ivana, then we'll, of course, work our way into the details. When someone is conventionally referencing the Greek pantheon, what are they referring to? Well, um, pantheon, meaning all gods, um, is a scholarly way to refer to a set of gods any culture possesses. So in the case of uh, ancient Greece, it would be the set of gods venerated by the ancient Greeks. Um, So the divinities that uh, they worshipped and uh, venerated, all their gods. And we we touched on this prior to chatting, but I want to get it in the episode because I think it's relevant to the conversation today. Is there a difference between Greek mythology and ancient Greek religion? And if so, what is the difference? Well, that's a a really big question, uh, Andrew. Um, And Greek mythology is a much better known uh, aspect of Greek religion. These are stories about uh, gods and heroes and uh, occasionally humans. Um, that were recorded first uh, in the poetry of Homer and Hesiod, uh, and then uh, most uh, Greek drama, uh, especially tragedy, is um, 
in essence, a mythological story. Uh, so the stories about the gods are part of a religion, but uh, just one part of it. Um, an essential part of Greek religion is the lived Greek religion, uh, meaning uh, what ancient Greeks uh, believed about the powers and the divine influence uh, in the, their own life and the life of their community, and very importantly, uh, uh, what they, uh, how they communicated with the gods, what rituals they performed for the gods, uh, all of that is really Greek religion. And um, the, the, the pr problem, in a way, uh, with this relationship of uh, um, mythology, Greek mythology and Greek religion, is that uh, oftentimes, and Greeks uh, noted that uh, themselves, they would have uh, different versions uh, of uh, a story about, say, where a specific god is born, um, the parentage uh, of uh, specific divinities. There will be different myths about that, different versions uh, of one and the same uh, a myth uh, could be uh, presented in, in tragedy, in epic, uh, in stories. So uh, I think that the problem um, is, is one that comes from the Christian perspective and the scholarly perspective because the religions of the book uh, such as Christianity, uh, do not attest that uh, happy uh, plurality of different versions of different myths. Uh, so uh, since there are um, contradictory uh, aspects uh, of myth, the, the question then arises, well, what is the thing that ancient Greeks actually believed? Um, and so, uh, uh, a contrast is created between the plurality of stories uh, and uh, belief in gods in religion and cult. And this, this goes as far as claiming, uh, as you know, some, some scholars too, that gods, uh, ancient Athenians saw on the stage uh, were fundamentally different from the gods they venerated in cult. Athena from cult uh, was a different sort of divinity than uh, Athena uh, as she appears uh, in tragedy. And I am sort of of uh, the opinion that uh, mythology, stories about the gods uh, were um, represented the first contact and the first source of information uh, ancient Greek kids uh, would have about the gods and that depictions of divinities they would see uh, like statues or paintings uh, or, or reliefs, as well as all the different stories about Zeus and, and Athena uh, mattered for um, their religious ideas and relationship with divinities uh, in cult. Uh, so it's, uh, it's in a way the question uh, uh, pursued by scholars of Greek religion for um, as, you know, centuries, and the question that ancient Greeks themselves tackled. So uh, very early on, you have ancient Greek philosophers who attack the idea that gods are anthropomorphic, uh, meaning that they, uh, uh, that they are based, that they look like humans, that they have human shape. Uh, uh, there are philosophers who attack the idea that uh, there were battles uh, uh, amongst the gods, and that you know Zeus would treat his own father in an unseemly way, whereas um, a, a very important tenet of Greek morality was that you have to respect your parents, especially fathers. So you know how can we respect our fathers when Zeus himself overthrew? Uh, his father and basically put him in uh, a prison that is uh, Tartarus. Um, and for me, uh, as a scholar, this was this is the primary reason why I find Greek religion so fascinating. Because from the very beginning, Greeks themselves um, pose questions about their own myth and discuss it critically. 
um, and this discussion has been ongoing up until the present time. In your opening response, so let's let's um, dig deeper into the into the topic. So in your opening response, you mentioned their pantheon meaning means all. So how many approximate Greek deities have been cited? Uh, that's a great question. So pantheon means all gods. So it would be then a set of all gods. And um, I I can answer this question, you know, in a in a in a very long uh, or in a in a brief way. So let me start with the brief answer. Hesiod, uh, who um, is a poet uh, who, in his poem, Theogony, basically genealogy of the gods, tells the story about the origin uh, of uh, the first gods, uh, who for him are elements, primeval gods. And then he, he tells the birth story and the origin of uh, divinities up until Zeus, and then the children of Zeus. So he goes from primeval gods to the establishment of the so-called Olympians. He mentions uh, about 300 divinities by name. And it's clear uh, that some of these come in catalogs that are pure names. And as an aside, ancient Greeks loved catalogs. Uh, this is an obstacle for modern readers to just read name upon name upon name. Ancient Greeks uh, loved this. Um, so 300 gods mentioned in Hesiod alone. Um, you could then, as a longer answer, say, well, um, the main set of the gods uh, for the ancient Greeks, the so-called Olympians, and then later we have the notion of the 12, are Zeus and his family. Uh, but ancient Greeks also venerated rivers. They venerated nature, uh, nature divinities, uh, which are beautiful young female uh, creatures called nymphs. Um, they venerated uh, the winds. Uh, they venerated uh, later on uh, divinized human beings who were important rulers. Uh, Alexander the Great is uh, one such example. They would introduce uh, new gods, sometimes foreign gods, uh, such as, for instance, uh, the cult of Isis, uh, who comes from Egypt, the band is from Thrace, um, and um, there are many such examples. So you can see that uh, uh, the Greek pantheon is massive and it just keeps expanding. Um, so that's why I talk about the, the wonderful plurality. Uh, the gods are very many. Uh, some are uh, super important. Some are more local. Uh, such as the nymphs who are kind of tied to their place. And of course, the, the river divinities are where the river is. Um, but uh, already a pre-Socratic philosopher famously said, everything is full of gods. Uh, and uh, that's a great way to think about uh, the Greek pantheon. So in the case of Hesiod referencing around 300, deities, do scholars believe that those 300, when Hesiod was writing about them, were already in the collective consciousness of Greek people at that given time contemporarily? Or is it a case where Hesiod would have been inventing some of those deities? Um, I think uh, it's a, that's a great question. Um, and here we can, again, uh, I think many of these gods, uh, most of all the uh, Olympians, so Zeus and Hera, Poseidon, Demeter, Apollo, Artemis, Ares, Aphrodite, Hermes, Athena, Hephaestus, uh, Hestia, Dionysus, 
these were uh, venerated across Greeks, and the Greeks knew them. When uh, Hesiod talks about the nymphs, of course, ancient Greeks venerated and uh, knew the nymphs. Um, uh, the cult uh, of Titans is already, so this is the previous generation, is already uh, a bit of a difficult point. Uh, Hesiod talks about the, the 12 Titans and how they uh, came into being. And we know that in some places, such as Olympia, uh, there were altars uh, for uh, Kronos and Rhea, but uh, not all the Titans were uh, uh, object of cultic veneration. And uh, then we move to uh, a, a super interesting uh, issue of personification. So uh, strife, uh, for instance, uh, history says is a divinity as is uh, sleep and death. Uh, we later see a massive proliferation of uh, personified entities who are um, given the status of divinities. Um, and my sense is that uh, ancient Greeks took uh, the so-called Olympian gods very seriously as object of cult, uh, but strife, uh, rumor, who uh, Hesiod says uh, is uh, also uh, a god, um, is not so much an object of cult as to say, well, rumor is somehow divine, is to say, um, I think that rumor is a very powerful thing. Uh, and sometimes we humans are in the power, in the grip um, of uh, rumor. So it's, it's somehow more than human. Uh, finally, um, when uh, Hesiod goes into uh, uh, massive catalogs of um, water divinities, uh, it is very probable that, that he displays uh, his poetic mastery by inventing names uh, of sea divinities who are somehow connected to their watery element. Uh, like the one who rejoices in waves, uh, the foamy, and so on. What is the format of the earliest known attestation to a Greek deity? So was it in artwork, writing, something else? And what is it? Well, the earliest attestation uh, of many gods that we... Uh, encounter later is in the Linear B script. Um, and uh, I see you have a whole podcast on the Mycenaeans and uh, Linear B. Um, so uh, the first literary attestations in the so-called uh, Linear B uh, script are from about uh, 1400 to 1200 uh, BC. They are associated with the culture that we call uh, Mycenaeans. Uh, what we know about them is based on uh, their uh, written record. Uh, so they uh, spoke a version of Greek language, very old uh, Greek language, uh, and also archaeology. Uh, we uh, can see where they lived and uh, sometimes how they lived on the basis of archaeological excavations of the centers of their culture. Now, uh, for someone like me, who is deeply interested in um, what did Greeks believe um, what stories did they tell about the gods? How did they imagine the gods? Um, linear B is a very meager source. It would be uh, like, Andrew, if I had your tax uh, uh, records as a sole testimony of your life. Uh, linear B tablets were palace records. Uh, we have no stories in them. They were never, uh, uh, the, the, the tablets that, that are found uh, do not record anything but uh, records of the Mycenaean palaces. So, you know, we can uh, deduce a lot from them, such as which gods did the Mycenaeans venerate? And then we immediately hit on gods we know uh, from later Greek religion, Poseidon is attested. Zeus is attested. 
uh, Hermes, Hera, um, uh, Dionysus, uh, Hephaestus, uh, then there is a, a, a very uh, frequently attested uh, goddess called Potnia, mistress, uh, like the mistress of horses, the mistress of grain, uh, the mistress of winds. Then, because they were palace records, they would sometimes uh, attest to what kind of offerings uh, were given to the gods. In Greek religion, the principle of you must always thank the gods and show honor to them and show respect to them by giving them stuff. Uh, we can see that this is at work in the Mycenaean period uh, and that they receive offerings uh, that are um, later uh, very normal uh, for uh, ancient Greek religion, uh, such as uh, animal sacrifice, uh, but also objects such as uh, uh, vessels, uh, perfume uh, is given, um, and uh, they had priests. And uh, this is something that we see in later Greek religion as well. So, you know, uh, the first uh, and earliest attestation uh, of uh, the Greek pantheon uh, would be in linear B tablets. But, you know, we, we need to be very careful when talking about Mycenaean religion, because uh, these tablets were never meant to be a, a record of their stories and beliefs about the gods, but they're still incredibly valuable. The, the episode that, for everyone listening, that Professor Petrovich mentioned on the show with Linear B, that was with Professor Dmitry Nikasis. He was on the, the show a few weeks ago. Uh, as a reference point to everybody, I don't have th that specific date, but Professor Petrovich and I are doing this recording on September 23rd, 2021. And in that episode, Professor Nicasis spoke about as well some of the Greek deities showing up on Linear B. So that's findable online or the podcast app that you're using to syndicate the show. Can you share, Ivana, the origin myth of the Olympian gods? Um, so this is uh, something that uh, ancient Greeks were uh, interested in. Uh, and uh, the closest we come to ancient Greek uh, religious uh, literature uh, comparable to uh, our uh, like hymns that uh, people sing in church are hymns. And uh, there is a very old uh, set of texts uh, very early on attributed to uh, Homer, so that's why they're called Homeric hymns. And many of these are, uh, uh, you know, very ancient, very old. And in the Homeric hymns, uh, they are uh, addressing uh, individual divinities and tell the story of their birth. Um, so the story of the birth is uh, super interesting for the Greeks because uh, Greek gods are born uh, already in full possession of their powers. And uh, we have uh, one of the wonderful texts is the uh, Homeric hymn to Apollo, uh, which uh, tells the birth story of Apollo, uh, who is the son of Zeus and goddess Leto, and how immediately as he uh, was born, he says that uh, he wants... Uh, uh, the liar and prophecy uh, to be his areas of activity. Or we have the uh, Homeric hymn to Hermes, which tells the birth story of Hermes, who again is also the child of Zeus and uh, Maya, and how uh, on the first day when uh, Hermes was born, he immediately uh, stole the cattle of his brother Apollo and got into trouble and uh, made uh, basically a deal uh, with Apollo and help each other, but also very slyly Hermes uh, laid the claim uh, to his share. Uh, of honors uh, and uh, his areas of influence. So um, the, the Hesiodic Theogony is a very early text uh, that tells a story about uh, the birth of all gods. 
so since uh, Hesiodi sets out uh, to tell a story about the birth of all divinities, uh, he doesn't go into much detail, uh, such as the, the delightful uh, Homeric hymns, uh, but he charts uh, uh, a story in which you start with a gap um, with, and uh, then you have the primeval gods, uh, the earth uh, and uh, Tartarus, uh, which then in the course of the poem becomes the um, underworld area and Eros as generative element. Uh, and uh, then Earth uh, gives birth to the sky and then mates with uh, the sky. Uh, and so the Earth and the sky produce uh, the 12 Titans, uh, which I uh, mentioned. And uh, then, I mean, I can go on and on. Uh, the story of the Titans uh, is, is very exciting. And I think you also have a whole podcast on uh, the Titans as well. At any rate, starting with the Titans, uh, the, the gist of uh, Hesiodic story is that um, divine births have consequences and that there is a danger um, that the king of the gods would have a son. Unfortunately, ancient Greeks were a patriarchal, misogynist society, and uh, there is they didn't think of a daughter really usurping the father. So the fear is, if the king of the gods has a son who is stronger than the father, there could be divine descent. And sort of led by this fear, the, the king of the gods then somehow prevents his children from uh, being born. Uh, and this happens in various ways. So the sky does not allow uh, children of the earth to exit the birth canal. Uh, and then the next king, Cronos, uh, uh, he uh, decides to kind of micromanage and take things into his own hands. So he uh, swallows his children and he preserves them in his own belly. Now, since all of these creatures are immortal, you can't really uh, dispose of them. You can't kill them. So uh, the the usurping of power happens in, in weird and gory ways. So uh, the heaven gets castrated uh, and so is not productive anymore. And this is the end of uh, that reign. Cronos, uh, because he is... Uh, basically swallowing all these children who are still alive uh, in him, um, he is forced by trickery to uh, basically vomit them. <laughs> uh, and uh, this is how uh, Zeus and uh, his siblings uh, uh, get out into the light. Um, and now... Um, there is, because Zeus is very strong and he has powerful allies, he is trying to overthrow his father, Cronos, and eventually uh, he succeeds. Uh, and so Zeus and his siblings become the reigning set of the gods, uh, and the Titans are imprisoned in the lowest um, level of the world, uh, Tartarus, where basically like a prison cell is uh, built for them and the guards are established. Um, and th this problem of uh, divine succession and the air representing uh, a possible threat uh, to the uh, divine order and reigning king then plays out even after Zeus, because before the birth of his son Apollo, who is a very mighty divinity, there is a general fear that Apollo might be uh, violent and hubristic and might want to overthrow uh, his father, uh, which doesn't happen uh, because Apollo, immediately after his birth, as I mentioned, says, I am going to profess to humans the will of my father. And so he removes this fear that he is going to usurp. 
uh, Zeus. But what we learn from, from Hesiod is that ancient Greeks were already very interested in the question of origin. How did the world come into being? How did the gods uh, come into being? Um, and uh, we also learn uh, that uh, a, an Olympian order, such as it is, um, is currently the, um, the system, uh, but there are built-in dangers uh, in a way that could, that could um, imperil this system too. So it's very different from um, monotheist religions. So in that response, Professor Petrovich mentioned a previous episode on the show, another another one on the Titans. So I want to reference that one as well for one listening. That was with Professor Emeritus William Hansen. So you're doing a, a, a great job, Ivana, covering a lot of material with these summarized type questions. So I want to ask you another type of question that's going to probably take a lot of material in, in more of a summary uh, kind of way. So I'm going to mention three Greek deities, Zeus, Athena, and Hera. Can you summarize each one, and, and you, have, you have full liberty to take, take this in the direction you want to take it, but can you summarize who they are in Greek mythology and or ancient Greek religion? You can touch on attributes, disposition, where they live, earliest attestation, etc. So Zeus, Athena, and Hera. <laughs> Go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, Zeus is um, the patriarchal king of the Olympian gods. Uh, he himself, uh, as I just said, uh, came into power by overthrowing uh, his own father. And um, Hesiod's uh, Theogony, uh, in, in many ways, uh, is a, a sort of a hymn to Zeus. Um, and, you know, many scholars have uh, noted that um, the, the way Zeus establishes his reign um, and uh, what we nowadays would call uh, his managerial strategy uh, is uh, well outlined uh, in uh, Hesiod. Uh, Homer uh, also uh, has Zeus as uh, the divinity who has a plan. So uh, the, the will of Zeus um, and the plan uh, of Zeus um, you could talk about it as um, basically his his vision of how events are going to play play out, um, and it's it's quite relevant that when Apollo, who is the god of prophecy, uh, uh, talks about prophecy, he says, "I reveal the will of Zeus to humankind." Uh, Zeus himself in the uh, Iliad uh, is not stronger than destiny. Uh, and this is very important to, to note. Uh, this is one key attribute of uh, pretty much all uh, powerful gods in Greek religion. Uh, they are all extremely powerful, but not all powerful. They are all born, but immortal. And they are all talking about representations, especially uh, uh, the representations in visual art, uh, they're all frozen at a specific uh, developmental stage. Uh, so Zeus is represented as a mature um, um, man. Uh, I, I don't know how to age, uh, how to, because he's of course uh, immortal, but he is like, you know, the father of the family. Think of him as the, like this sage, mature, old, bearded guy. Um, Zeus is also uh, uh, extremely sexually active. I mean, all Greek, Greek mythology is um, full of sexual escapades. Um, and you know when I when I explain Zeus to to my students and the problem of uh, what is the shape 
uh, and the visual uh, appearance of Greek gods, I say, you know, most uh, Greek artists represent uh, gods as anthropomorphic, but Zeus himself, um, as well as any other god, also take other shapes. Uh, and Zeus display, <laughs> Zeus puts his variety of uh, shapes on display, especially in his actual escapades. Uh, he takes the shape of a swan in order to have sex with one woman, a bull in order to have sex with the other. He even took a shape of golden rain uh, in order to uh, have sex with a third. Um, and he is the god of uh, storms. His massive and most important managerial uh, <laughs> strategy is hurling a thunderbolt uh, at his uh, enemies and vanquishing uh, him uh, that way. In Greek cult, uh, the, this sort of colorful, um, especially sexually uh, colorful uh, vision of Zeus is uh, more subdued. He is a guarantor of social order and uh, the protector of the most important um, institutions of society. Uh, he is the one who steps in to punish you uh, for uh, hurting a guest uh, because, uh, and you should definitely have a podcast on the ancient idea of uh, guests. Um, so he, he protects uh, the, the fundamental aspect of family, uh, the moral rules, uh, the social rules, um, and uh, he is, uh, in a way, um, the embodiment uh, of most important social norms, uh, which he protects. Moving on to Hera, Hera is a, a, a really interesting uh, a divinity who, in Greek myth, is um, uh, the consort of Zeus. Um, so this in and of itself is a problem because Zeus has many consorts uh, and he has basically produced uh, a, a vast number of divinities. Uh, so uh, Artemis and Apollo uh, and Athena, uh, they're all uh, his children. Uh, but uh, Hera as uh, um, uh, the divine consort of Zeus already in Homer's Iliad, is his uh, one of his really main adversaries, <laughs> and uh, she is the two of them are in myth often represented at odds um, and quarreling, uh, and Zeus even threatens violence against her uh, in a very unsavory uh, way. Um, so Hera is also uh, a divinity who is uh, super angry when uh, Zeus has Artemis and Apollo with the goddess Leto. And just to illustrate what her character in myth is like, she says, um, how dare you, um, you know, have all these children uh, without me? And most of all, you gave birth to Athena uh, all on your own, uh, I could have participated in that. I'll come to Athena. And uh, then she gets super angry and uh, gives birth to a, a, a monstrous adversary uh, who uh, is a challenge to the reign of Zeus. So that's uh, Hera in, in myth, perhaps, you know, the, the greatest highlights uh, of, of her. In cult, uh, Hera is a, a protector of the institution of marriage. Uh, she was uh, a really important uh, divinity uh, on um, Samos and had uh, a super ancient and very important uh, sanctuary there. So there, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, people who venerated Hera as their main divinity uh, maybe, you know, took a, a leaf out of mythology and thought, you know, Hera can get very angry. But for them, Hera was a protective divinity who stands for the 
uh, institution of marriage and, and protects it. Uh, and here we see uh, a, 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 what some would say connect between mythology and religion. How is a goddess who has such a horrible marriage actually uh, an embodiment of marriage as an institution? And uh, yes, finally, I wanted to talk about Athena. Um, any, you know, do you have any questions? Should I or just go to Athena now? You're doing an excellent job with covering a lot of ground, like I said earlier, Ivana, in a short period of time. And I, I will make a comment. Some of the best hospitality that I've ever experienced has been in Greece. And I've I've wondered by Greek people, and I've I've wondered that before if that has anything to do with um, tradition. You had mentioned, I believe you had mentioned uh, in tradition, Zeus is the guardian of hospitality. So I've had that thought uh, before, but have had wonderful, wonderful experiences um, uh, in, in Greece with, with people, with the hospitality that they've, they've shown. Well, I'm, you know, I'm really glad to hear that. And this is, you know, hospitality is, was sacred uh, and uh, hurting a guest uh, was considered to be one of the most outrageous uh, crimes uh, you could commit. Um, and, uh, of course, on a podcast called Ithaca Bound, uh, I don't have to really elaborate that the, it's the odyssey, really, in, in a way, is uh, uh, a hymn to uh, hospitality because the way you treat uh, a guest in the Odyssey uh, signals and 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 immediately puts to display whether you are civilized or uncivilized. So, uh, having respect uh, for a guest is a sign of civilized, cultured living. Um, and certainly, hospitality was. Uh, very, very important in the ancient world. And I've experienced wonderful Greek hospitality myself uh, many times. Um, so the goddess Athena has the best birth story uh, of, uh, I would say, all the Greek gods, uh, because uh, she is born fully armed out of the head of Zeus and uh, with a war cry. <laughs> um, so it's her. Um, role is, uh, of course, familiar to um, most of us who know the city of Athens. She was uh, the most important uh, goddess there. Um, she uh, is, interestingly, um, the woman who is entirely male in her spheres of interest and, and influence. So the very fact that uh, Athena is born fully armed and she is usually respected at the citadel of the cities as a protectress, protector of a city, uh, tells you that uh, this is a very strange woman. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, this gives me an opportunity to, to talk a little bit about the disconnect between uh, the Greek uh, Olympian gods and everyday life in Greece. So amongst the Olympian divinities, you have many female divinities. And in ancient Greek life, uh, women had a very marginal role. Uh, ancient Greek cities were mostly deeply misogynist, and uh, Athens was uh, certainly uh, one of them. And yet, uh, you know, Athens where women had zero political role and were, in terms of their legal status, uh, basically eternal children. Uh, always uh, needing a legal, legal guardian, these same Athenians uh, venerated uh, this goddess as their main divinity and protector. So, you know, the, the thing is, <laughs> my students are all <laughs> always upset uh, by this or, you know, irritated by, by the disconnect, which uh, truly is there. So, 
you know, she is uh, the one who deli delights in strategic warfare. Uh, and uh, she herself is the goddess of the war cry and the battle. Um, she can raise the armies, uh, which she uh, does uh, in Homer. She is the protector of male heroes and associated uh, in myth with helping uh, male heroes. So she famously restrains Achilles uh, in uh, book one uh, of the Iliad. Uh, she helps Heracles, uh, a hero who was elevated to the status of divinity. Uh, she helps Jason uh, and the Argonauts. Uh, but she is also the goddess uh, who uh, is a, a patron of weaving, which is a very female uh, activity. And uh, for her, the women of uh, Athens uh, wove and presented to her uh, a wonderful robe, uh, which was the pinnacle of the most important festival at Athens, the uh, Panathenaia. So the olive oil uh, and olive uh, is associated with her, and she had a sacred uh, olive tree uh, at Athens. So um, in a way, um, she is a manifold and uh, confusing divinity like uh, most Greek gods, really. I'm in the episode plugging mood uh, today, Ivana, and you're making it so, e so, so easy and nat natural, um, but pertinent. So I want to mention as well, for everyone listening, Professor Emeritus Mary Lefkowitz has been on the show for episode 100 in the past on the, on the podcast and that episode was on Athena. If uh, those listening, if you hadn't listened to that episode and, and want to uh, listen to it. Okay, your, your energy around this topic, Yvonne, is, is contagious. Your, your passion's coming, coming through. <laughs> um, this has been a, an excellent conversation. And as I said a couple times, um, you've covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. Is there anything uh, before we wrap up, is there anything that you want to make sure gets in this episode about this topic that we have not covered yet? Or is there something that we did cover that you want to emphasize? Uh, well, thank you. Um, thank you very much. This is um, th this has been uh, really exciting for me too. I, I just wanted to just briefly uh, touch upon the uh, Olympians and the Twelve, uh, because th this seems to be, uh, I, I think, um, uh, an issue th that could be clarified a little bit. So when when we talk about, or rather when when I talk to my students about uh, the Greek pantheon, the, the first uh, surprising fact is that the Greeks had so, so many gods. And they often come uh, with this impression of, you know, the 12 gods. <laughs> um, so I, I would like to um, just take a look into what does it mean to say Olympian gods and what it means to say the 12. And just to clarify, the um, Olympian gods is, is a very old notion. We find it in Homer. Uh, Olympus is a mountain, the, the tallest mountain in Greece. Uh, and uh, in Homer's uh, and, and Hesiod's imagination, gods have their homes on Olympus. Uh, so to say an Olympian divinity is to say, you know, a, a god who has a home on Olympus. Um, and we we should think about Olympus as uh, or representing not so much, I think, a, a high mountain as the sky itself, because it's just very high. Um, I think it also helps that it's snow covered for a large part of the year, not throughout the year. And this in Greece, of course, is a, a rarity. The idea of the 12 is a later uh, development and uh, the, uh, the the first attestation of the twelve uh, is uh, from sixth century BC, 
Um, and, and the attestations are, you know, in the Homeric hymn to Hermes, Hermes, uh, who performs the sacrifice, divides the meat in 12 portions. And this has been associated with an actual altar uh, for the 12 gods uh, at Olympia, which was a super important sanctuary of Zeus, where the games were organized that then gave, uh, um, that are the origin of our Olympian games. Uh, so we know that there was an altar of the 12 gods uh, at Olympia. Uh, we know that in late 6th century uh, at Athens, they built an altar uh, of the 12 gods. But, and of course, after uh, the 6th century, uh, we have attestations of altars and uh, honors for the 12 throughout the Greek world. Which gods belong to the 12, however, is a matter of regional diversity. And something that I just didn't get to talk about and, and is very important is that each Greek city-state had its own set of VIP divinities. Um, so, um, of course, for Athenians, Athena was the most important divinity. Uh, and uh, other gods had other, uh, sorry, other cities had other gods who were their most important divinities, but they also would have a set of the most important divinities. So the 12 is, in a way, one of those questions that you can't really answer uh, because local versions of who belongs in the 12 are many. And however, whichever way you kind of try to, to, to swing it, you can't fit and press all the super important pan-Hellenic divinities into the number 12. Um, and, you know, there are various um, theories as to why 12. 12 is probably a very, like, complete number and a full number. So, you know, the 12 deeds of Heracles, the 12 months uh, of the year, and so on. And my sense is that because Greek, Greek divinities, uh, as many cautionary myths attest, were super upset if someone left them out, the notion of we will sacrifice to the 12 and honor the 12 kind of was all-inclusive, so uh, hedging all, all bets. But that's just uh, my, my theory. So just, you know, the idea of 12 and the idea of the Olympian gods, I think, bears a closer investigation and look. You did a great job today, Ivana, and it's been a true pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Andrew, for having me. So the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Professor Petrovich wrote, she's co-author of Inner Purity and Pollution in Greek Religion, Volume 1, Early Greek Religion, and she's co-author of the forthcoming Volume 2 in that series. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Ivana and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you, and always keep Ithaca in your mind. Love it.